Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Multipolarista. Today we'll be talking about the elections in Brazil. Yesterday, which was October 2nd, there were national elections in Brazil. And of course, everyone's watching the presidential elections, which are very important. The far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro is up against the leftist former president Lula da Silva. And Lula easily won the first round with 48.4% of the vote. And Bolsonaro did a little better than the polls had suggested, and he got 43%. But Lula won by more than 6 million votes. So we're going to be talking about this important race. Because Lula didn't get the 50% that he needs in order to win in the first round, it's going to a presidential runoff election on October 30th. But there were also other elections on October 2nd, including for Congress and Senate. So we'll be talking about the, the political situation in Brazil. And today I'm joined by a good friend of mine, one of my favorite journalists, Camila Escalante, who is the editor of Causachu News, the Bolivia-based independent news website, one of the best resources. I mean, I would highly recommend everyone following Causachu. And Camila also is a Latin America correspondent for Press TV. She does really good work, and, and you can follow her at uh, Camila Press on Twitter. I have a lower third here. Um, so Camila, let's let's start. You've been in Brazil for a few weeks here. Can you talk about the situation on the ground in the lead up to the presidential election? And then what was the response that you saw last night? Absolutely. Well, I've been here since August 15th. The campaign period began on August 16th. So I came over for neighbor, from neighboring Bolivia. It's a very important country for us as well. I'm not Bolivian myself, of course. But it's a country that already has established trade with Bolivia, even though they are countries with governments with completely different ideologies and approaches and policies, economic policies. But, uh, you know, they are able to maintain friendly relations as they did with Evo Morales and still now with Luis Arce. So I was able to hop over here on BOA, the state airline of Bolivia. Um, I think this is something, you know, really important as well as, you know, just just to highlight that these are, you know, really important uh, neighborly relations. There's a huge potential for that if we were to see Lula return to power. But um, so since I've been here, I've been able to report in five different states. I landed here in Sao Paulo, was able to go to the state of Pernambuco, where I reported largely in the city of Recife. That's where our good friend Brian Mir is based now. He used to be based here. He's a Telesur correspondent for Brazil. And um, I was able to uh, see a lot of, you know, what the left looks like, the organized left in Pernambuco, which is uh, in the northeast. The northeastern region is, of course, uh, supposed to be one of the poorest regions of the country. It's largely Afro-descendant, definitely more so Black and Afro-descendant than this region of the country. And it is heavily in favor of the PT and Lula. Um, it was you know, very incredible there to see the blocos, the different uh, parades and different things um, in favor of Lula. They have these sort of carnival, um, what is it, like rehearsals on the weekends. And those all every weekend converted into just Lula rallies. I was also able to cover uh, the southern uh, Rio Grande do Sul, uh, the state of Paraná, the state of Santa Catarina, and of course here. And those were mostly Bolsonaro strongholds. And for that reason, when I saw all of the, the support for Lula, 
Um, it really seemed like Lula, you know, had an edge, had an upper hand on this election. But we were surprised to some extent. I think a lot of supporters of Lula and the social movements were devastated, even though he was victorious in the first round. He didn't uh, win an outright uh, win in this election, but he did, like you said, uh, he did pull ahead of Bolsonaro with over 6.1 million votes. Um, not only that, but there were all sorts of victories um, in all of the races uh, for the PT. And so I think a more careful reading of the results um, outside of the presidential race is necessary. Maybe we can get into that as well. But, um, you know, what some analysts have said today is that what Bolsonaro actually picked up last night uh, was largely what uh, Ciro had been pulling at. Ciro Gomez has tried to paint himself, frame himself as some sort of left alternative candidate to Lula. And he has spent, uh, you know, months uh, engaging in daily attacks on Lula's candidacy and really uh, putting out sort of the same sort of propaganda that we see coming from the major networks the last couple of years and the same sort of attacks that uh, that Bolsonaro has been engaging in against Lula and the PT. So it was very obvious and many people have made comments to me. Um, many people firmly believe, it's not just some sort of rumor um, or conspiracy theory, but a lot of people think that Bolsonaro and Ciro Gomez were actually formally working together during this campaign to try to nudge out Lula and that he had been given, Ciro Gomez had been given so much attention by the major networks over the course of this campaign for so many months, of course, in all the debates, but also just in general, his press conferences and everything else have been covered. And he's basically just been there to spread this anti-Lula propaganda. And then come last night, um, you know, now with the 99.9%, he literally received just 3% of the total vote. That's absolutely absurd. And it, you know, that, that it goes the same for all the rest of these candidates, particularly two of the candidates in the top six were um, invited to be a part of the three uh, presidential candidates debates. And they also received a ton of coverage. And one of them is, you know, uh, a far right person, even more extremist than Bolsonaro. The other one is just a neoliberal hack that basically represents um, some multimillionaire here. And, you know, these people were given an absurd amount of airtime. All of them basically used their airtime to go after Lula. Um, and they received, each of them, about half a percentage point. They, don't, they didn't even receive 1% as they were predicted to receive in the polls. So it really does seem like these are a bunch of forces that were working to nudge out Lula and to try to get Bolsonaro up there to that level of support. That being said, the polls obviously said that in the second round, Lula should have some sort of advantage uh, against Bolsonaro. Um, but things may be changing. I think we really need to look at what the strategy is. It's worth saying that today, this afternoon, when I get off, I'm going to be heading to um, a press conference of the PT. And it's actually going to be um, a press conference on the, uh, how are they framing it, a campaign coordination meeting. And it's going to be on, you know, what's going to happen from now um, till the next elections, which are in less than four weeks now. Yeah. And Camilla, let, let's talk about the response we saw to Lula's victory 
Um, last night, on the night of the victory, we saw that Lula addressed a crowd. There was a big rally, and he is pretty optimistic. He said, we're going to win this. Lula did get 48.4%, which the polls had shown that he would get between 48 and 52%. So that's that's not too surprising to see. Now, if he had gotten 50%, he would have won in the first round. But what is surprising is that, as you mentioned, Bolsonaro ended up getting a lot of Ciro Gomez's votes. And you said that there's speculation that they've been secretly conspiring. Um, you mentioned our, our mutual friend, Brian Meyer, who's a great journalist. Um, Brian Meir, who works with Telesur and has been living in Brazil for many years. And Brian's argument is that now the fight that they're going to have in the runoff on October 30th is especially trying to get the votes from the MDB and candidate Simone Tibet, who got 4% of the vote. Brian Meir has pointed out that Simone Tibet's party, the MDB, which is a right-wing neoliberal party, basically has uh, has supported every single government. And you know, even when Lula was in power, now that, now that Bolsonaro was in power, ever since the end of the military dictatorship in the 80s, they've just tried to go along with whatever the ruling government is. So it seems that now Lula and Bolsonaro are going to be fighting over those votes. If we just look at the sheer number of votes, Lula got 57.26 million and Bolsonaro got 51.1 million. So Lula got 6 million more, but he still needs a few million extra to push him over that 50% mark. So I'm, I'm wondering what you think, what the struggle will be. Um, we know that the, the, work, the Workers' Party, the PT of Lula, has been trying to activate labor unions and social struggles and the social movement. Um, do you think that now he's going to have to slightly change his strategy to maybe win over some of those more centrist or even center-right people who are alienated by Bolsonaro? Or how do you think that that's going to play out? That has been the strategy of Lula and the Workers' Party campaign all along. They have been going after those centrist and right-wing votes, quite frankly, because they know that Bolsonaro represents a far-right, uh, that far-right base of regular people, let's say, in addition to agribusiness and, you know, those other big business interests. And so, you know, really, in the case of Brazil, the, the party that represents the broadest number of people's interests is, of course, the Workers' Party and Lula. And I think that there are a lot of right-wing people who have said, um, just in the interviews I've done, uh, you know, that they did actually vote for Bolsonaro in the last election and that this time they were going to actually vote for a, a third party. Um, some people said that they would be voting for Lula because they weren't um, impressed with, with uh, the management of the economy, specifically post-pandemic, uh, by Bolsonaro. So I think they, they've had that all along. I mean, if anyone has noticed, if you've noticed, you know, uh, people don't really praise Lula as some sort of anti-imperialist champion of our region. He's not uh, really saying anything particularly hardline left. He's really just speaking to the average person all the time. And it really resonates with people. So the strategy is working. But maybe, you know, they didn't get as far as they wanted to would have wanted to in this first round. So that being said, yes, they are going to be speaking, um, having talks probably last night, this morning. Probably the first thing they did was, you know, try to coordinate those meetings with uh, Simone Tebet and Ciro Gomez to see if they'll um, actually back Lula in this round. Certainly they might have a better chance with Simone Tebet if we are to speculate that 
uh, Ciro Gomez is in any way working with Bolsonaro. Uh, Simone Tibet, I mean, I don't, I didn't know anything about her previously, only that on the debates, it's very clear that she doesn't have any actual proposals or program or vision for the country, uh, something that's extremely important right now. She just is a woman and that's what she wants everyone to, to kind of follow her on her liberal fe feminism uh, campaign. And so I, I do believe that there's that uh, Lula has a very good chance there. The the sort of like infrastructure of the of the PT has been and of Lula has been very impressive. He just has a very big team of you know strategists and lawyers. This is just like an unprecedented election in its size. Just obviously because of the size of the country, also because we're talking about a country where it's. Uh, the vote is required. It's mandatory. Although there was, there were about 20% of people who didn't participate. Um, and so, um, you know, the machinery is huge. This is also his, you know, he's already run for president previously. They got uh, Dilma elected. And so I actually believe to some extent in, in the machinery of the PT to sort of look for those votes. It's very difficult to, um, the social movements themselves have vowed since last night to do everything in their power to continue campaigning um, on the streets. Uh, you know, the social movements don't have uh, the, the large television networks at their disposal. They engage in a lot of street activities all across the country. It's extremely impressive. But on a whole, Lula does have the vote of you know the most important unions and social movements in the country, he has the vote. You know he has support from LGBT movements, from uh, you know Afro and Black Brazilian uh, organizations, let's say. And so, so I think that you know what they're going to be doing, the social movements, aside from the party, is continuing to go out to the streets and engage with regular people. And the PT is so dependent on that in some way, um, because this relationship between the social movements and the PT is not always necessarily formalized. And I'm talking about a bunch of social movements and just generalizing right now, but they really do the groundwork for the party, despite that in a lot of cases, the social movements, just to name a few, uh, like the landless workers movement being very important, a lot of the different movements for housing, against evictions, against poverty, they actually have more anti-imperialist positions on things than Lula. Uh, they're, you know, further to the left in, men in many ways, and they've disagreed with and rejected some of his policies uh, during his government and even some of the things he, he says in passing currently. But they continue to believe that this is the vehicle and that this is the, you know, political instrument for them to be able to move their demands up to, um, up to national politics. Uh, that being said, <clears throat> I guess we can get to this later. If we, but, you know, the, the MST was actually able to elect six uh, lawmakers. And this is the first time they ran candidates nationally in 15 states. Uh, and two uh, federal Congress people or, you know, uh, congressional lawmakers on the national level were elected who are militants of the landless workers movement and four were elected to state legislatures. And that's extremely important because they've actually, you know, throughout this period, um, since, the, since the movement was founded 
about 30 something years ago, have, you know, had that very close relationship, not only with the PT, but also the Workers' Party, but also with the PASOL, uh, let's say the Partido Verde, or the Green Party, um, and the PSDB, most importantly. Uh, but at the same time, it's very important that they have their own representatives. And for social movements such as the Landless Workers Movement in any country to be able to take political office is a very difficult thing in any country. So it's extremely impressive and historic. Um, and so I was able to attend the launch of uh, Rosa Amorin's campaign in Recife in Pernambuco. And she uh, she won there and she's actually not just any person, it's not just any militant of the, of the landless workers movement, but she's the daughter of one of the coordinators of the national direction of, of the movement. And someone who is, you know, very well known within uh, sort of these land movements that say like the Via Campesina, um, not only in Latin America, but around the world. So it's people, you know, with extremely uh, important positions both for you know domestic policy here in Brazil, but also that have a very uh, important perspective on the world and how Brazil should participate in the world. So um, it's very impressive to see them come to power. And then just going back to um, you know just in case anyone wants to paint it as if it was a huge loss for the PT, the PT did actually have net gains in both houses, in the Senate and the Congress. Uh, so they gained more than they lost in, ter in terms of seats. And as well, if you look at the map with all the colors, um, you know, where it shows all of the seats and you just see a sea of blue that's supposed to represent Bolsonaro's uh, candidates who were elected to the Congress. It's actually, um, you know, not really representative of how the Congress works because the PT doesn't just operate alone in the Congress. They're part of a formal block. Um, and so they work along with the PCDB, um, the Communist Party of Brazil, as well as the Green Party, and they vote alongside the PSOL as well. So that forms a very large block uh, within the Congress. And the same can be said about um, the Senate, where the PT has never had a large presence. And in this election, they actually gained two Senate seats. Um, and then a lot of people, and I'm just saying this because... Um, Brian has been trying to go after the people on this on Twitter and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, with in the foreign press, a lot of people are making it seem like, uh, again, this was a huge loss for the left, even outside of the presidential race, for whatever reason, and saying that Bolsonaro is picking up a lot of seats. But if you look at the, 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 the net gain loss for all the parties, there are some parties in the Congress that lost 10 or 11 seats. And those are all just the same candidates and the same representing the same people, but they just got ratcheted over to Bolsonaro's Partido PL party, Liberal Party. And so really what it is, is this that they're, you know, casting aside their temporary uh, for rent parties and then moving over to Bolsonaro's PL and making it seem as if the party itself is growing, when really it's just, you know, people with the same right wing interests just running underneath a different banner or a different name. Yeah, very important analysis. And I do want to talk more about the uh, the other races, not just the presidential race. Of course, those are important as well, because even if Lula can win, he won't be able to implement a lot of his legislative agenda without, um, you know, having that support within the Congress and the Senate. 
But before that, I, I just want to talk about the programs, the competing programs of Lula and the Workers' Party on one side and Bolsonaro and the Liberal Party on the other. Um, can you talk about some of the, the messaging of the different campaigns? We saw, of course, that Bolsonaro ran on a, a very far-right campaign, um, demonizing marginalized communities, uh, you know, Afro-Brazilians, LGBT people. He also um, tried to win the support of many religious institutions, although Lula has support of some religious institutions. And we also see in terms of his foreign policy that, you know, like you said, Lula is certainly not flawless, but he has pushed for more regional integration. He supports working with the progressive and socialist governments in the region. Uh, Bolsonaro has still recognized Guaido as fake imaginary leader of Venezuela. And in fact, Guaido sent a video to Bolsonaro that Bolsonaro tweeted out of an endorsement. And Bolsonaro also tweeted out videos of endorsements from uh, the former prime minister of apartheid Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and Donald Trump. So there's a lot I can to respond to there. But the last note I'll say before you talk about their programs is you can also talk about their economic programs. I think it's just really useful br briefly because people might not have a, outside of Brazil might not have a good understanding of the economic situation in the country. Uh, Lula was in power from 2003 until 2010. And we can see even according to, you know, World Bank data, this is a bourgeois institution. We saw that when Lula came in in 2003, the Brazilian GDP was 558 billion. And when he left in, two, in 2010, it was over 2.2 trillion. That is, he quadrupled the size of the Brazilian economy. And because of the drop in commodity prices, because of the U.S.-backed coup and the instability, the, the GDP decreased in the years. But especially since Bolsonaro came in after you know, the, these U.S.-backed coups, when he came in in 2018, the GDP has continued shrinking and there's been a constant economic crisis. So basically, Brazil has been in a kind of perpetual economic crisis. So how are these two candidates responding to that economic crisis and what are the, the contrasting promises that they offer? Well, we've heard this before in other countries, heard and seen that, you know, specifically in the United States, you know, what the incumbent is doing is just lying and basically, first of all, saying that Brazil has a very strong economy currently, there's no uh, poverty here, and that there aren't hungry people. This has been said by not only Bolsonaro, but Bolsonaro's candidates uh, during the campaign. It's just the outright denial of any sort of crisis. And the fact is that, you know, well, basically he has very little or no program. And a lot of different people have noticed that, you know, the crisis since 2016 and particularly since the pandemic has, uh, we heard from João Pedro Stegi, which is one of the national leaders of the MST. Um, he gave a little talk to some of the, um, let's say social movement media from Latin America just the other day. And he was saying that the crisis that has been created under the mismanagement of the economy has affected the historic interests of the bourgeoisie here. He said that during these last six years since the coup um, in 2016 against Dilma, 28,000, remember this is a massive country, 28,000 industries have been closed, not companies, industries um, have been closed. And he's not talking about bars or, you know, small restaurants. He's, you know, he's saying that um, this has never happened in any other country to this, um, to this extent. And he said that, you know, this is affecting the owners of, 
the bourgeoisie, the owners of these uh, of all these different companies, and it's affected their productivity, including agribusiness. And so they're worried. They want a state that can guarantee stability in the way that Lula was able to guarantee stability during his years. There's a lot of these people from not only you know big business and transnational interests, um, and you know who obviously control the, the the big networks and big media, but they have decided to abandon uh, Bolsonaro. And so this, for that reason, I think that gave us a little bit of hope uh, that that Lula would be able to win because it's very clear that he's not only supported by the left, that other people would like to see a strong economy here to be able, so that they can make money. I mean, if this is just a country where nobody can even afford, you know, their next meal, um, especially at the end of the month or when their salary runs out, then this, this is just no longer going to be a place, you know, where at least services and different things can exist. And so, um, you know, like you said, the complete opposite is true for Lula. People are remembering and the campaign is reminding them how good everything was um, in, during the Lula years, that they had stock refrigerators, that they were able to dress better, that they were able to travel, that they were able to um, have leisure time and earn uh, a better salary less on a less precarious basis. It's also at the same time that during these six years specifically since uh, the coup against Dilma has also been the you know arrival of the gig economy as we know it now and the uberization of the economy. And people are really angry about that. There's so many people in this country who work in the gig economy. I know that's true everywhere and I'm sure people in the United States can relate. But I mean, I it, it's actually shocking the extent to which it happens here. If you are a young person, uh, this is how I was thinking about it. If you were a young person um, and you decide to date someone, you know, like, as like a 16, 18, 20 year old, like the chances of the person you you being in a relationship or one of the two people in the couple being an Uber driver or a rapid driver, like a delivery food, Uber Eats driver, whatever, is like a hundred percent. It's like one in two people are working in this industry. It's really um, unfortunate actually. And as well, you know, the salaries have gone down. There has been no rise to the minimum wage, um, you know, to keep up with inflation and everything. And so. People are working full-time jobs Monday to Friday, and also, um, if that's available, um, and then also working in the gig economy on top of that. And people don't like that, and they know that it's wrong. One of the things that the, the PT has been so successful in doing, and the social movements that have such strong propaganda in this country, is just letting people know, you know, through these sorts of popular ways of, of getting people information, right? Because you're not going to get the average person into a political formation school. But people in this country know that um, that it's not normal to try to juggle or to have to juggle three, four jobs as a single mother or as a couple with children or as just a young person or whatever, whatever, you know, type of uh, family you're in or household you're in. They know it's not normal and not acceptable to live like that. Actually, I would say in the United States and Canada, people have gotten um, accustomed to, to, to doing different jobs and are not really angry about it the way they are here. And so, you know, a lot of people have kind of pointed to the way in which, as depicted by these outlets such as Vice News, Redfish, I have to say, and other, um, other outlets of that sort, have really 
uh, put a spotlight on the far right views of Jair Bolsonaro and the sorts of bigoted things he and his candidates uh, and those around him actually do say about LGBT people, their homophobia, they are Islamophobic for sure. Um, and you know, racist things in general. But this election hasn't been about that. It really has been about meeting people's very basic economic needs. Um, there is some sort of like background or on the side culture war going on, I'm sure, just like in the United States, where um, you know people are, are kind of fighting over things that are not made the most necessary. But on a whole, I would say a lot of the success of Lulev, especially in overcoming all of the disinformation in the media, has been that people realize that things will, they believe, they've been made to believe that things will be immediately better if Lula returns to power. And so that's what they want to see. Um, they believe that, you know, given everything we've seen in the last six years, that, that Bolsonaro has absolutely no, you know, no economic program um, and no vision for the country. And that when Lula comes back, he's going to automatically start fortifying those relationships with other countries, um, you know, strengthening trade, revitalizing Brazilian industries. They're on board with him, you know, nationalizing everything or renationalizing everything that has been privatized. And they believe that that's going to directly affect them and allow them to uh, quit all their jobs and only have one in order to have one stable salary and a better life in general. Yeah, very well said. The kind of uberization of the economy is a huge problem. And I should also say that another big aspect of this is that Bolsonaro's economic minister, Paulo Guedes, is a literal Chicago boy. He studied at the University of Chicago and he taught economics in Chile during the Pinochet dictatorship. And he supported Pinochet. He supports the same kinds of neoliberal economic policies. And we've seen mass privatizations under Bolsonaro. We've seen the decimation of state-owned companies, the destruction of companies like Petrobras, which had been one of the most important uh, companies in the entire Brazilian economy. And, and I know that uh, Lula has talked about trying to undo a lot of those neoliberal policies. I also want to talk about the international orientation. Lula has always been a big advocate for South-South cooperation and regional integration. Lula was one of the co-founders of the BRICS system. Of course, B in BRICS stands for Brazil. It's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Lula has for many years called for strengthening the BRICS system, whereas former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, under Donald Trump, and, and also former CIA director, Pompeo boasted on Twitter that thanks to Bolsonaro and also Narendra Modi in India, he claimed that uh, the U.S. had helped to destroy the BRICS system. Now, obviously, we saw that that was very premature, and the proxy war in Ukraine has showed that much of the global South is not on the side of the U.S. It's neutral because of it. Their own these countries have their own economic interests. Brazil relies a lot on Russian fertilizer and also has a lot of trade with Russia. But the point is that Lula was one of the co-founders of the BRICS system. He's called for strengthening BRICS. And Lula has also supported processes of regional integration in Latin America, including the Bolivarian Alliance. Lula even promised in his campaign that if he becomes president, he's going to try to create a new currency for trade within Latin America that he calls the Sur, which is, means the South. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the, the international alignment of these, these candidates. Of course, we've seen that 
Bolsonaro has been the most obsequiously pro-U.S. leader in Brazil since the military dictatorship. And Lula, although he, he certainly has, there's certainly criticisms, he certainly has a more independent foreign policy. How are people in Brazil talking about their differences in international approaches? Well, again, we heard from, you know, some of the national leaders. I'm actually losing my voice from so many, um, from speaking so much, but um, we heard from the national leadership of the MST. And what they said is that, you know, Lula has never, again, painted himself uh, explicitly as an anti-imperialist, although there are a lot of things he does in terms of the protection of Brazilian sovereignty. I mean, for example, nationalizing uh, industries, strengthening uh, state industries, investing um, in, investing in industries. And so, um, but, you know, they've also said that, you know, his first priority, as he said since the very beginning of this campaign, is that he's going to strengthen the BRICS and put you know a lot of force into it and transform it into a great economic and political block with you know Brazil taking huge leadership position not only in that but also in uh, in Mercosur um, I think he said something about you know Mercosur um, expanding um, and so I don't know if he said if he's actually said anything about um, Alba. I'm not sure what that's in reference to, but I think that would be very, uh, that would be great. But um, it's difficult to say because he hasn't, he, he made those comments about the, the South American currency prior to the actual launch of the election. And he hasn't said anything since uh, that I can tell. But so it, it wouldn't, I'm not sure that it's something so certain and that it's more likely for there to be some sort of global South currency that isn't out of Latin America specifically. Um, but just in general, in terms of his relations with other countries, he has been asked on several occasions uh, during these sorts of uh, press conferences with the foreign media, national media, um, that he thinks it's very important that what we're seeing right now with the environment and the fires, specifically in the northern region, the north uh, western region of the country, here in Brazil, that they are not just fires within Brazil, that they have a shared border with uh, Venezuela, with Bolivia, um, and several other countries, and that uh, these are, you know, these sort of climate environmental issues are things that are going to have to be done all together with the neighbors, and it's going to be very important to uh, to fix, to mend those relationships, which he, you know, he considers to have been destroyed under Bolsonaro. He even thinks that Bolsonaro has destroyed relationships with um, not only the neighbors and sort of left-leaning uh, governments of other countries, but also with, uh, you know, the imperialist powers. Lula wants to have, you know, better and, and be more respected among uh, European countries, among the EU, Canada, and the United States. He has said that. He thinks that the United Nations, or not the United Nations, sorry, the European Union is, um, is sort of a block that Mercosur and South America should aspire to be like. And so that's something that he wants to try to recover is those sorts of relationships. Uh, but also he wants, you know, he just like is the theme throughout Latin America right now, alongside Alberto Fernandez and, and AMLO, he wants to strengthen unity within Latin America. And he believes that that can only be done by speaking with all countries. And so I believe that he's not able to say it, but that he would really try to mend the relationships the relationship with Brazil and uh, Brazil's relationship with Venezuela, and that is, is one of his priorities. 
And there's been a distinction made, you know, by the analysts of the social movements, because this is a country where the social movements are so big that they have analysts. But, um, you know, and the sort of PT aligned analysts have said that there's just a huge difference. And this is what the sort of gringo public have have stated so many times. They're always commenting, commenting on this. But of course, there is a very big and, you know, important distinction to be made by the PT, the Workers' Party as a party, and the Lula government and the Dilma government. There's, there's, there are limits to what can be done um, as a government when you know you have a, you have to work with the Congress and you have to work with all these different parties. Uh, there are some serious constraints, and it's very difficult for a massive leftist force or any leftist force to come into power in Latin America. And if you don't behave the way you're supposed to, then you get taken out. We just saw that uh, three years ago in in Bolivia. Uh, but we see, you know, even center left uh, governments being threatened all the time, particularly right now in Argentina. I mean, it was from the outset that was taking place in Peru. It didn't even have a chance at being a leftist government. So, so I think he's had to, you know, he's had to tread a very, uh, you know, he, he's had to be very careful. Um, that being said, the PT, which is his party. Um, and it's you know formed of uh, unions and social movements. Uh, it has a very strong relationship with Cuba, with Venezuela, and to possibly a lesser extent Nicaragua. But I think they're going to be um, you know that's something that social movements are going to have to push for once he's actually in power. Right now he can't state anything. You know what he's been saying during the campaign in terms of you know what his proposals are for a lot of these things is very bare bones. It is very basic because he knows he doesn't have to go into it. People already like him. People already decided that everything that came out the last few years was fake news. And they just want improved living conditions, more opportunities, um, and yeah, less less poverty in this country. This is a country where you see crime everywhere. And the sorts of scenes you see here are what people have claimed about socialist countries. It actually happens here. It's been happening here for a long time. It's been a highly unequal country. And so that's, those are the sorts of promises he's making is to, uh, you know, bring back those, those uh, programs of poverty alleviation and subsidies that will um, benefit uh, mothers and families. Camilla, I want to talk more about the alliance that was formed of the left-wing parties and social movements You've mentioned the MST, the Landless Workers Movement, which is extremely important. It has a lot of influence in Brazil, but also throughout the region, working with other leftist forces. The MST has always pushed you know, an anti-imperialist line, and it has always pushed for land reform, which is something that you know a lot of peasants and farmers in Brazil really have really need and really have been asking for. Um, the MST has been um, organizing on the ground. And also you have a, a somewhat broad left-wing coalition that they call Brazil of Hope. And that includes the Workers' Party, the Communist Party of Brazil, and the Green Party. And we saw that that they the Brazil of Hope coalition ran candidates together for the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies. And they in, in the Chamber of Deputies, they did pretty well. And they're the second biggest uh, coalition, although Bolsonaro's far-right liberal party is, is still the biggest party in the Chamber of Deputies. And in the Senate, the Brazil of Hope leftist coalition, it did okay, it did decent. It, it won seats, 
but it's definitely not the biggest coalition inside the Senate. And there are a lot of right, there are a lot of right-wing parties, including Bolsonaro's far-right liberal party. And then there are many other small right-wing parties that could potentially join Bolsonaro or Lula is obviously trying to win them over. So uh, although even if Lula does manage to win the presidential election in the second round on October 30th, which is a very real possibility, it seems like in the Chamber of Deputies, he might have be able to work out some kind of majority. But in the Senate, it looks like a very difficult struggle to try to get the votes he would need. So I'm, I'm curious what people have been saying about the strategy of trying to unite different forces to get, you know, to get that that uh, political base that he would need to implement any anything that he wants on his agenda. I think like that sort of um, that strategizing campaigning is going to be ongoing for Lula. He's going to have to continue to reach out um, to these different right wing parties, even when he comes to power. Um, when he, when he gets back to the government, because it is going to be very difficult. Um, like you said, this, um, like in the Congress, he's only, or the PT is only gaining back these seats that were lost. That's bringing them back to the, to the level uh, of representation they had in the Congress during 2014, during Delma Rousseff's uh, government. And so, it has, I think it will be very challenging. Um, hopefully it's like, I'll, I'll have to ask Brian about that. I'm not, I'm not really too sure like what the, what the strategy is going to be, but um, yeah, I, I mean, as far as the, the different, the different political forces, I mean, as it is, it's been, it's, it's somewhat of a success. I would say that he was able to get these parties, these 10 parties together to back him and formally endorse him. In, in his presidential run, isn't the most formal of endorsements. They put out a document together about what their um, vision is for the country. The leadership of these parties have actually been on stage with him at all of his events in the different states. Um, we, and then the most important uh, political uh, leaders of these various parties who ran for the presidency in the 2018 election this year, because it was already decided that they would be a coalition, didn't even run a candidate at all. So it wasn't like there were multiple leftist candidates. They all from the outset said that we need to get Lula back into the government. So you saw uh, Manuela Avila, Davila from uh, Porto Alegre, who was the leader um, and the candidate in 2018 for the PSDB, um, running with Lula, um, supporting Lula from the outset bringing all of her you know, supporters on board from the very beginning. The same with uh, Guillermo Bulos, uh, who was the most elected or the most voted uh, person for Congress in the state of Sao Paulo. Again, a Bolsonaro stronghold that, um, elect, that is electing a PSOL, a leftist progressive candidate, even though it's supposed to be a right-wing state. So he was the presidential candidate for the PSOL in 2018 when Lula wasn't able to run. So that means that you just have people with fairly large platforms. These are not just like whatever parties. All of these parties and particularly uh, as well the, the party of his vice, vice presidential uh, candidate, uh, Gerardo Alckman, all of them have their own support base. They're not just like fringe parties and all of them are elected to office. 
um, both as, as on the state legislature level and to the, the federal Congress. Um, and, and also in the municipal level, which is very important as well. Extremely important because this is a country where the cities are so large that we're talking about here, you know, 12 million in like the, the, the main Sao Paulo. So, so a, a city council position is not nothing. So, you know, these are very well-established parties. They're not just like, you know, random fringe communist parties that have been backing him. And what he has said when he's been asked at Lula, when he has been asked by the press at press conferences, how he's going to bring together different parties and be able to manage them when he comes to power, he said, it's something we're already doing right now. I've managed to get all these parties together, 10 parties, um, all of which are significant. Um, and and he's already going to have to bring these different people into his government, give some of them some positions within the ministries um, and everything that he's planning to do. He's obviously made these promises to to open new ministries, the Ministry of Culture, Ministry of Women, and so forth. And so he's going to be including all of these different people, some of which have, quite frankly, you know, more right-wing uh, positions um, and so they're going to, you know, that that, that itself could is a, is a bit of a compromise that he's going to have to manage. But the fact that he's been able to do that and get all these endorsements, he's not only being endorsed by these intellectuals and academics and artists, singers, rappers, um, and social media influencers, but actually people from the business sector. Last week, um, I guess a week ago on Tuesday, he dined with 100 businessmen. Um, very important key businessmen decided to give him an endorsement. So that means that, and this is at the very end of his campaign, of course, I believe that that means that there's more room for him to, to grow and seek the support of those sorts of sectors as well, now that he has the whole left locked down. Um, and then the, the other thing that people have pointed to, including um, Petra Costas, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's the director of the Edge of Democracy, a documentary on Netflix about Brazil. Um, I interviewed her last night. I didn't get to post it because I don't get to post all the different things I do. It's very difficult. But what she said was that what's most important in the next four weeks is that he focused on getting more of the evangelical vote and more of the vote from the different Christian groups that continue to be dominated by Bolsonaro. There was too much uh, betting this time around that's that many of those people would have left, abandoned Bolsonaro in this round. But what we ended up seeing was that all the people who voted for him in 2018 voted for him again this time. And the indication that people were abandoning him was all due to the, those surveys. Those voter intention surveys actually asked you know, about people's religion. And what they were showing was that Lula is beginning to peel away some of, some of those evangelical voters, but it wasn't enough. And so what she was saying is that that the campaign didn't strategize enough about that. And in fact, on the final, um, the final presidential candidates debate, which is on Thursday night, they had basically uh, this father, like a priest, uh, but he's supposed to be like a fake priest. I'm not really sure what he actually does. Um, basically, they're just to make Lula look anti-Christian and to look as if he was, um, you know, attacking a, a, a Christian leader because they know people are very sensitive to that. So we might see a little bit of that in the next few weeks of going after those Christian religious groups. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the role of religion. I know that's very important. And there is this, this stereotype that the evangelicals in Brazil all support Bolsonaro. But as you said, I mean, Lula has 
one over a lot of religious elements. And the, the it's not simply it's not simple enough to say that evangelicals are with Bolsonaro. It's it's a it's a battle that's going on, a political battle. I also want to talk about the role of the media, Camilla. How has the media response been in Brazil? We know that back in the 2018 election, in which the U.S. government backed a kind of soft coup that removed Lula from the race, he was leading in all the polls. The U.S. backed this coup that imprisoned him on false charges. The United Nations, uh, the, the top experts on um, arbitrary detention, have said that Lula was arbitrarily detained and that the political charges, that the legal charges against him were politicized and it was an unjust process that violated his civil liberties. The United Nations has said that clearly. So that was a kind of coup in 2018 that removed Lula, which is from the race, which is what allowed Bolsonaro to enter office in the first place. And we, we saw that in 2018, the media helped play a role in, in putting Bolsonaro in power. Now, from what I've seen, many media outlets, because of the economic crisis in the country, have been critical of Bolsonaro, but that doesn't mean that they support Lula. So I'm just curious what you think about the media response in Brazil and also the role of international media coverage. Yeah, like you said, it was all kind of pinned against Lula in 2018. They needed that um, in order to jail him and, uh, and and create that narrative that he was guilty and and should completely be you know given a lifetime ban on uh, participating in electoral politics. But you know, a lot of people didn't uh, fall for it. A lot of people did. Just last night and throughout this coverage, I've noticed that. Um, it is the case that the, the media has been a little bit more neutral. Bolsonaro and his supporters claim to everybody all the time that the media is Lulista, that it's pro-Lula and against and pitted against Bolsonaro. That's absolutely absurd, especially when you see who the anchors are um, at some of these major networks, um, such as Globo. They're people who are quite explicitly um, anti-communist, aligned with uh, you know, the Brazilian dictatorship. Um, and so I, yeah, I think, I think things have changed a little bit. They have, you know, been told from above that they need to soften their tone. There are some, uh, some business interests and, you know, people within their, their shareholders, I guess, their directors who say we can't go after Lula in that same way. So that has really opened a space, but I would say in large part, it's also the reason we're able to hear a more well-rounded, narrative on what's going on within Brazil is because of the rise of all these different leftist media outlets that have been so key. Uh, some of the unions have their own and union federations have their own media outlets. We have uh, just you know a little bit of a spectrum of leftist media that has been very key in disseminating information, including free newspapers such as Brazil de Fato, which is kind of one of the outlets that we're working with while we're here. And um, you know, they have been very key to, to sort of informing on the mistruths of that campaign in 2018. And the fact is that although some of the mainstream media outlets continue, including in the, the foreign media outlets, continue to ask Lula when they have the opportunity about corruption, what are you gonna do about corruption? What are you gonna do about the fact that your government was corrupt? Things around those lines. I mean, he's had to remind them that all of the charges against him were annulled. But that's information that we're now able to find because of all the different, um, all the different that uh, 
outlets that arose in response to the to the vast disinformation. It's the case in every Latin American country, but it's just here, just like everywhere else. I mean, I was, or perhaps here more than other places, I was absolutely shocked um, just sitting in a, in a taxi listening to, uh, having to listen to talk radio that they listen to here. And you have people who are basically, um, you know, intellectuals of the right, who are very articulate, more articulate than you know I or most of my colleagues will ever be, on why communism is bad and how communism and socialism will completely destroy an economy, completely destroy a country, destroy families. I mean, they talk about this at length on, our, on hourly programs every day. And so people are listening to this 24 hours a day or however long they're driving or sitting in their car or at home. They're just listening to this talk radio. And it's basically just so as blatant anti-communist propaganda for one, but it's also just done so well. I mean, radio is just one, it's just one medium. There's also, you know, television as well. Um, there's print, uh, but you, you have to think that like, you know, why are people, why, why is the far right so large here? Um, and so I don't, I don't know if I want to say strong, but um in this country why is it so you know like fortified especially in certain parts of the country and a lot of it is because of that because there's no window for people to get other information when they live in certain parts of the country that are you know more conservative uh more uh, traditional certain you know christian religions are more dominant there and they're hearing this over and over and over again and they're not just talking about lula is corrupt um, and those sorts of things. They are talking about why socialism has failed in Venezuela and how that model is going to be imported here. I heard them, you know, discussing, you know, the different stages of socialism, right-wing uh, right wing commentators discussing the different stages of socialism very eloquently. It's absolutely incredible. So they just, you know, have people listening for an hour about what's going to happen next. And here's what's going to happen when Lula comes to the presidency and then, you know, and they're basically saying that the, the final stage is basically that you don't hold elections anymore and that, you know, there's a complete loss of democracy. Um, even though we know that the left has said here, 50% of voters, I would say, just about 48.5% of voters have literally said that they are elected, they're trying to vote for Lula to bring back democracy because that, whatever he is, socialist or center left or whatever, represents democracy. But they're saying, you know, so so it's, it's just all sorts of fear mongering that's ever present right now. And I think it's only going to be, um, you know, intensified in the, these next few weeks. And that's the scary thing. Well, Camilla, I know you, you have to run soon. You're very busy there. I just want to start wrapping up here, focusing on the regional context. We've, we've uh, you know, briefly addressed that in terms of Lula's call for strengthening institutions like the BRICS, um, his his floating the idea of creating a pan Latin American currency. I understand that, you know, he hasn't elaborated on that a lot, but Brazil is of course the largest country in Latin America. It has the largest economy. It is an extremely important country in Latin America and also the world. It has the sixth largest population. Um, it had the sixth largest economy, although because of the economic recession that has, it's fallen in the numbers there. But this is this is a massive, extremely important country. And I think a lot of people outside of Latin America, especially in the U.S. and Europe, have this kind of patronizing view of Brazil as, you know, just this like supposedly backward country in scare quotes, just not understanding 
how extremely important this this country is in, in the global political and economic architecture. So what does this election mean for Latin America and the world? As you said, it's extremely important. It's, a, it's the single most important country in our entire region. And I say that as a person who's not from this country and covers other countries more than this country. But I knew that it was very important when we saw the coup taking place against Dilma in 2016 to, to begin to follow closely the things that were happening to the extent possible. Um, and that there is a major, you know, part of why, if we're gonna use the word patronizing, I'm not really sure, but there's just a complete lack of information about Brazil is that there's that, uh, you know, there's a bit of a distance due to that lack of understanding because of the, the language barrier that exists between the Portuguese speaking, the Brazilian Portuguese speaking world and the Spanish world and that there's just such a huge Latin American diaspora in the United States, for example. And so the focus is always going to be there and to a lesser extent, Brazil. Brazil has to operate on its own. And you know, the only people who even recognize that Brazil exists are like Uruguay and, and Argentina because they share a border with them and they're able to you know, travel here by land. But it's extremely important. It's one of the uh, you know, top food producers in the world, top meat exporter in the world. The, you know, the strengthening of the Brazilian economy um, alongside the integration of, you know, the Latin, the South American region has so much, there's so much potential there alone in terms of securing food, not only for the Brazilian population, but also for any other uh, countries of the region who are having difficulty right now, given the overseas conflict. Um, there's also you know, all sorts of different struggles on the social movement level uh, that have implications across all of Latin America. These struggles for land and, and agrarian reform and these struggles against um, multinational mining, against these sorts of corporations um, and these indigenous rights struggles all actually don't exist within countries as like organizations just within a very specific locality. Many of them um, you know, exists across the entire continent. So I think, you know, these are sorts of things that are, are largely overlooked. But I think most importantly, above all, and what Lula is, isn't saying and can't say, is that he's going to use, you know, Brazil's leadership role that's going to commence once again, once they come into power, to contest the sanctions. We're they're no longer going to be able to apply unilateral coercive measures on countries like Venezuela and have them stick. Once we have completely different, a completely different, um, you know, a differently composed economic system and different alternatives, people are not going to have to go through the U.S. for anything. It goes back to you know the, the one the one thing that really interests me is, is like the state airlines. We need to form ways of communicating with each other south-south cooperation that doesn't have to go through the global north as an intermediary we need to be able to travel to africa strengthen relationships with china but of course first within our own region that includes the caribbean and i think that brazil has to be a leader in that people don't understand how huge this is we're talking about a country of 215 million people i live in a country and i've lived in another country two countries that only have 11 million people in them 11 so this is just absolutely massive this the city i'm in is larger than the country i live in so it, it has a potential to be a huge economic engine for our entire continent and you know i really believe that you know 
mending those relations, the way in which Gustavo Petro is with Venezuela is the path that, that Lula could potentially follow. Gustavo Petro made disparaging comments about Venezuela. And now we literally see the ELN heading to, uh, you know, head, heading to Havana and uh, Caracas to be, you know, mediated by these two countries as well as Norway, I guess. Um, to, to, end, to try to end the, the ongoing violent conflict in that country. They're reopening the border between the two countries. Bolsonaro was part of the plot uh, to try to take out uh, their democratically elected government and install a false leader. And he also sent arms and help to Janine Añez during the coup. So we're gonna see a completely different scenario um, with a very powerful country um, if, if they're able to take back power. I just think that if the United States, just to make another comparison, were to have an opportunity to elect someone like Jill Stein as president, you might not believe that she's, or you might personally have some disagreements with Jill Stein of the, of the Green Party and believe that she's not a hardline leftist candidate, that she's not the, the best anti-imperialist to represent me, but you would take the opportunity, surely, and put her in power as opposed to any of the, the candidates of the Democratic Party, Party and the Republicans. It would have Im like an immense impact on the entire world immediately. And that's what we're looking at here. And so the, the all the different forces of the region, the different neighboring uh, governments have to be silent on this because they too are constantly under the attack, on, you know, um, being watched by the media and they, they can't go too far because they'll be accused of intervening in the sovereign process of, of this country and these elections. But everyone is cheering on, uh, cheering on Lula in this election. Um, certainly Danielle Ortega, believe it or not, you know, I'm sure Lula has said many disparaging uh, comments about who is truly my leader, the Sandinista government, but just the same, they know the immense impact it'll have if they're able to return to power at this time. Yeah, and we've seen that uh, in, a, in a pleasant surprise, Gustavo Petro in Colombia during his campaign, he made a lot, made a lot of ridiculous, objectionable comments about Venezuela and Nicaragua. But since entering office, he's actually had a much better foreign policy. He's re restored diplomatic relations with Venezuela. He's refused to condemn Nicaragua at the OAS. So uh, the situation does seem to be turning back toward the left in the region with forces of regional integration. The last question I'll leave with here, um, Camilla, is I'm wondering what you think people should be keeping their eye on in, in the upcoming weeks leading to October 30th with the runoff. I'll just say that in the past few months, we have seen external meddling, especially by the US in Brazil. And our friends at brazilwire.com, where Brian Mir is an editor, um, and our friend Natalia Urban published an article back in May about the third in command of the US State Department, Victoria Newland, who is a main architect of coups. She helped organized the coup in Ukraine in 2014 that, that created the, the war that we see now. She visited Brazil and had a series of meetings. So there certainly are concerns about foreign meddling. And, you know, you talked about the constant media attacks. Uh, what should people keep their eyes on as the runoff comes up uh, on October 30th? Yeah, I think it's very, we're entering very dangerous territory. There's just more potential for meddling now in the second round. And of course, 
hopefully there are just as many eyes on the second round as there were on the first because so many people came, literally hundreds, if not thousands of foreign journalists came to cover this first round of the election. And now, um, you know, now the second round is going to be even more, it's going to be tighter. And so um, I believe that we really need to look at the statements of Bolsonaro, but the first, you know, statement that came out last night was from Anthony Blinken congratulating, you know, Brazil and Brazilian people on this process. Um, you know, they're, they're watching very closely. They're continuing to strengthen that sort of military cooperation. The Southcom continues to hold all of its drills here on, you know, Brazilian territory, both with, you know, those sort of binational drills, but also with other neighboring countries like Guyana um, and those other sort of, uh, you know, puppet, puppet governments are always cooperating to the extent possible with the United States. And they're doing that here. They were doing it on Independence Day, which is September 7th. They had drills in Rio at the same time as Bolsonaro was having his ultra-fascist um, events that, that had a, a ton of people, uh, quite, you know, very, very large showing. That was actually quite scary, both in Brasilia and Rio. And so, you know, I think that that's going to continue to the very last day. We've seen this in every country that, um, I mean, this is a little bit outside of the purely political. It is like on a military level. They try to just frame it as security cooperation, anti-drugs, anti-narcotics, you know, maintaining peace or whatever. But they do, for, till, until the very last day Bolsonaro is in power, they're going to continue showing up with shipments of SUVs and helicopters. That's what the United States does. They just send gifts and they equip, you know, these highly militarized countries with even more weapons. And so they're not, you know, I think that they're willing to work with Lula and they will if they have to. And they have a whole plan for that. And they have people right now who are trying to enter Lula's government when he comes to power. Surely they're going to, they're looking for ways of how to, how to coexist with a Lula presidency. But at the same time, it's not their preferred route. They would prefer to have, you know, uh, and work with Bolsonaro, even though Bolsonaro had such a, has kind of tarnished his relationship with the United States ever since Biden. So I think, um, you know, we need to figure out what's going on. I need to figure out what's going on today, what the strategy is going to look like, if, if things are going to change, what Lula is going to focus on. Perhaps Lula is not going to be doing so many rallies on a daily basis from now till the end of the month. Perhaps he'll be doing more secret meetings where we won't really know what's going on, but to try to get those right-wing sectors. And so, I don't know, I'll, <laughs> I'll let you know when I find out, but um, I think it's an extremely important and sensitive time. And Luis Almagro and the OAS uh, heads, the people around him, have been very sensitive now, even defensive, about the accusations that they have received because of their meddling in the internal process of Bolivia and because of the coup, because it's been widely attributed to the OAS for their interventionist you know, report um, and the things that they did during 2019 that basically led to the coup that, that played out that was, you know, done with the footwork of the right-wing forces within the country. But they're really angry about the way in which now the OAS is being discredited by, you know, by the Caribbean countries have denounced them. They've been denounced by MO and, and Alberto Fernandez above all. Um, and this is something that Bolivia's foreign ministry hasn't forgotten about. They continue to, to, to denounce the OES for that. And a lot of people are saying it needs a change of leadership. Others are saying we need something to replace it. But still just the same, you know, they have a very large um, infrastructure within these different countries. And, you know, 
obviously the, the U.S. Embassy is probably very strong here. It's probably one of the, the main hubs. And so a lot of different pieces are moving and we don't know what's going to happen. So I do think it's just extremely important to continue uh, to watch as things unfold um, and, and see in which, you know, the ways in which they're, these forces of the continental right, because it's not just Bolsonaro alone, are going to try to sabotage the process. Well, Camilla, I'm very happy that we can have you on the ground there doing important work from the grassroots, talking to the people from the social movements, voices that are ignored in mainstream corporate media. I would recommend that everyone goes to Twitter and they should follow Camilla at Camilla Press. And, and also, um, she's doing important work at Press TV and you can find her work there. Unfortunately, because of US government pressured censorship, it's very hard to find some of Press TV's materials on Western social media platforms, but you can also find her work at Kausachu News, which is just an indispensable resource, one of the best independent media outlet, outlets reporting on Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, Camilla, do you want to plug anything before you wrap up? Uh, well, I guess our new thing on Kausachu News is our podcast weekly, which is Latin America Review. We kind of started it like when I was here in Brazil. So it's been, you know, we're just getting it off the ground, but we think it's really important because we're not really um, interviewing Latin American experts or Latin Americans in the diaspora. We're interviewing Latin Americans who live in Latin America. We do think that there's a distinction to be made there. And, you know, we're going to, we have had, and we'll continue to have really fascinating guests saying things that, you know, we don't necessarily hear in the alter even the alternative, other alternative outlets. Um, but we're also, you know, it is really important that we continue to receive uh, support on Patreon because a lot of the work we do has been purely voluntary and we aren't some sort of 24 news outlet, 24 hour news outlet, because we don't, and we don't have a lot of resources. And in fact, we do a lot of side work. That's why you'll see our names popping up in all sorts of places. And it's not just because we want to get our names out there. It's actually because in order to survive, we have to do things, as I'm sure you know, Ben, um, and many others who do alternative media, we have to do a lot of articles and things like that for very small amounts of money. But so um, definitely support our Patreon if you can. And if you do so, you'll be able to hear all of our all of our um, podcast episodes previous and the forthcoming ones. Uh, we have some really interesting ones on there and we'll probably do another uh, Brazil episode from someone uh, with, a, with a guest from the PT, the Workers' Party this week. Great. Well, yeah, people can go to patreon.com slash news to support their very important work to support Camilla. I want to thank everyone who joined. We had a pretty good response. And of course, this episode will be available as a podcast later as well. I want to thank Camilla and thanks every thank everyone who commented and the super chats. And I will be back in a few days with more coverage. Thanks a lot. Thank you.